0: Hello! Coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegamelch. back, everyone. Great to have you here at Disaster Politics Podcast. Today's episode, we're going to talk about, you know, one of those issues we haven't spent much time talking about on the podcast, but it's one of the biggest issues in post-disaster recovery, getting people back in their homes. It's the subject of some of the most complex programs that are out there. A lot of times there are a lot of different options, a lot of different actors involved. And so our guest today, David Mazzucca, who uh, worked with the state of New Jersey and some of their post-Sandy housing disaster recovery programs, is going to talk us through, one, the complexity of these programs, what the different options were for rebuilding in the state of New Jersey under these programs. And so we really get on the technical side a bit into how these programs work, sort of why they take so long along the time frame that they're on, and then get more into what states can do, what jurisdictions can do ahead of time to receive and administer these funds. And finally, really stepping back and looking nationally, how do we do a better job of building these programs, of getting resources available for disaster recovery before disaster strike. So enough from me on this right now. Let's get into our conversation with David, and we'll see you on the other side. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Today, we've got a great guest. We've got David Mazuka. He formerly served as assistant director for housing recovery with New Jersey's Sandy Recovery Division in Trenton, New Jersey. In that role, he was responsible for administering the delivery of New Jersey's post-Sandy housing restoration grant programs. That's $1.4 billion in federal funds serving approximately 8,000 applicants. Proceeding that, uh, with the state of New Jersey, he uh, served as an economic development fellow with the city of New York. His previous professional experiences also include at IHS Jane's Terrorism and Insurgency Center in London, that's in the UK, and BAE Systems, uh, um, their U.S. government services practice in Arlington, Virginia. David received his BA in Urban Studies and MS in Real Estate Development from Columbia University and an MA in War Studies from King's College London. He was also a 2018 Marshall Memorial Fellow. David, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Jeff, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. So,
0: you know, as we look at housing and we look at housing after disasters, uh, you know, I, I, we've spoken a few times kind of prior to the podcast. We have. Um, And I'm uh, always interested in just sort of how it played out after Sandy. You know, I think just kind of this case study of the complexities of how's it, how it came through. Um, why don't you talk to us a little bit about how, how did this post-disaster housing play out after Sandy in New Jersey?
1: Sure. So the way disaster recovery works traditionally when a disaster happens, whether it's a hurricane, whether it's a wildfire, whether it's a tornado. After the disaster, states and or municipalities do seek out federal funds to begin the recovery effort. And to be clear, when I say seek out federal funds to begin the recovery effort, I'm referring to disaster recovery funds, not to be confused with disaster assistance funding. Disaster assistance funding comes from FEMA. That funding is limited to rental assistance, lodging expense reimbursement, home repair assistance, very limited ways of spending those funds. Disaster recovery is about rebuilding one's home or restoring rental housing that may have been damaged or destroyed in a disaster. That funding source comes from HUD, but the only way HUD can distribute those funds is if the federal government, through legislation appropriations in Congress, passes a bill, an emergency supplemental, for disaster funding.
0: So this is the, uh, by HUD, you mean the
1: Department of Housing and Urban Development? Yes, so Congress must do an emergency supplemental, which they often do following a disaster that rises to national attention. That funding is passed and then is given to HUD, that HUD then can distribute to the states or municipalities, uh, based, on, uh, based on an action plan. So to give a little background on what action plans are, after the funding has been passed by Congress in a supplemental, supplemental appropriation, I should say, then The states and or municipalities would submit an action plan to HUD, U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, for approval. Now, that approval process can be different lengths of time. The shortest it can be is really 60 days. In the case of New Jersey, we submitted our action plan in 2013 in March. Often, action plans—the minimum amount of time an action plan can take for approval—is 30 days. In the case of New Jersey in early 2013, it did take just over 30 days, that being the end of March to the end of April for HUD to approve it. Now, when you talk to other individuals in disaster recovery across the United States, they will tell you stories where it is longer periods of time, and that does happen. So, no one should expect that everything will go as smoothly as possible as it did in New Jersey's instance with the action plan being approved in early 2013. Now, once the action plan is approved, the states and or municipalities, whoever is the grantee receiving those funds, is responsible for building out the program as described in the action plan, which is building out the organizational structure, seeking out the consultants slash vendors to support the efforts, as well as ensuring that you have a policy and procedure in place in which the vendor and state and or municipalities can begin to execute from day one of the application period. In New Jersey's case, our application opened up in June of 2013.
0: So June of 2013, now the storm made landfall in late October 2012, right? Correct. So we're looking at eight months. Correct. Nine, ten, eight. Yeah, eight sounds right. Eight months after the fact before even the program is really kind of up and running. Correct. uh, With these interim steps. Um, So a couple of Key milestones, I just wanna wanna highlight from what you said. So the storm hits, the funding's not there. Correct. It literally requires an act of Congress. Correct. Um, Congress being the bipartisan collaborative entity that it always is, generally comes through, although we've seen some controversy. The Sandy recovery funding had some hang-ups that ultimately got resolved, right?
1: Initially, yes, but it did get resolved, and in the scheme of things was not a long hang-up as we have seen in other disasters since 2012.
0: Yeah, yeah. And we're seeing these more and more. And I think it's worth noting that we are seeing these disaster supplementals come out sometimes later and sometimes in a lot more pieces than they did for Sandy. Correct. Yeah. Uh, Meaning that maybe you'll get initial approval on some programs, but then additional money down the line and they're being lumped in with multiple disasters at once. Sort of a whole other sort of
1: And sometimes the supplementals are more, more focused on disaster assistance going to... FEMA's efforts, not to be confused, disaster recovery, going to supporting HUD's efforts in rebuilding. So that's what you're seeing more often now when these supplementals are coming through.
0: So the disaster strikes, Congress acts, the states then have to read what Congress acted through. Well, actually, let me back up. The agencies then receive the money, in this case, housing and urban development. They have to figure out what Congress meant. Then they give it to the states. And then you have to figure out what the parameters of the program are, set it up, build the infrastructure. It's now June of 2013.
1: Correct. June 2013, when our application period began. Right. Okay. Um, So
0: uh, what kinds of housing challenges did you primarily see in New Jersey as you got this program set up? What were some of the things that you were coming across and some of the needs you were trying to meet through the program?
1: So challenges mainly lay between citizen demands and political pressures, which is what most people would expect. I always describe my role and the role of my team as that being both the steward of the U.S. taxpayer and the servant of the people of New Jersey. Thus, you had to balance both roles as the programs evolved and matured from initial execution to program closeout. So let me highlight a few challenges that we did face over the years, that being from 2013 to, let's say, approximately 2015, the first two years of a program, which commonly you go through an evolution because... The best laid plans do have to evolve. Sure. Several challenges. One, speed of construction. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of background on our three housing recovery programs. We had one program named REM, which was the Reconstruction, Rehabilitation, Elevation, and Mitigation Program. Another program called the Low to Moderate Income Homeowners Rebuilding Program. And last but not least, the Landlord Rental Repair Program, LRRP. The first two programs I just mentioned were very similar. The only nuance being the lower-to-moderate-income homeowners rebuilding program was dedicated to serving an LMI population. That being said, both programs provided grant awards of up to $150,000 to assist applicants in rebuilding their primary residences that that were damaged or destroyed by the storm. LRRP, on the other hand, provided applicants, applicants being landlords, grant awards of up to $50,000 per rental units of buildings no greater than 25 units in order to restore that infrastructure. In turn, the landlords must rent those units to a LMI individual for at least one year.
0: You know, this is uh, some of the work that we're doing in a lot of the areas recently affected by Hurricane Florence, Hurricane Maria, um, you know, low-income housing is one of the most difficult things that a lot of our partners are contending with. Um, I'm curious, did you see a lot of that in terms of getting low-income housing back up and running? Did you see as much pressure in in your experience in New Jersey?
1: So, I should say at this point that we didn't see the type of demand that I think the designers of the program anticipated. Okay. The number of units that LRP served in the end was less than 1,000. Okay. Myself, I came on board at the end of 2013 managing LRP. So our programs and procedures were already in place. So there wasn't too much massaging, if you will, Mm -hmm. to those PMPs that we could do at that point. But it was a smaller population, or rather I should say a smaller applicant pool than we anticipated initially serving. Sure, sure. yeah. Um, But in regards to REM and LMI and the program design applicants had the option of pursuing three different pathways. Pathway A, which was dedicated for those applicants who may have already completed work on their home, either in its entirety or partially, they could receive reimbursement. Pathway B, applicants would select their own contractor. Mm -hmm. That contractor would be validated by the state, ensuring the proper registration and licenses for that contractor. And then the applicant would be paid through the process of construction directly by the state, and then the applicant must pay the contractor in turn. Pathway C, applicants could choose to not manage their own construction process, like they would have in B, but instead seek the state to manage that process. The state developed a contractor pool Mm -hmm. initially, that being in the summer of 2013, And the state would choose a contractor from that pool to manage the project for that applicant. The state would then pay the contractor directly and not the applicant under Pathway C. Why this is all important? It's important because one of our initial challenges was Pathway C. Mm -hmm. Pathway C got the government, the state of New Jersey, in the business of construction. Mm -hmm. And getting an organization like ours, the Sandy Recovery Division, in that business was not a uh, natural uh, transformation. You weren't
0: managing construction prior to the storm. It was a new mission, new task. Correct,
1: correct. There were two challenges that materialized. First, speed. Mm -hmm. While only supposed to take 90 days to complete construction, naturally construction on the homes that were damaged and or destroyed by the storm did take longer, often because the initial planning was not as robust as one would have wanted before nails, hammers, shovels went in the ground. Mm -hmm. Second, many of the contractors were headquartered out of the state of New Jersey. So this was the first time doing business in New Jersey, and for that matter, many of them in the Northeast. So you have to think that they're hiring local subs who they are beginning relationships with and do not have established relationships with and are understanding the rigorous construction permitting and inspection process that we have in New Jersey. Yeah. Put aside even the very litigious nature that we have in New Jersey.
0: Yeah. So, you know, this is uh, uh, interesting as well. You know, some of the groups I've uh, talked with in Texas after Harvey, a lot of the volunteer groups would go in. I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent, but we'll bring it back <laughs> or we'll edit it out. I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, Uh, You know, uh, uh, they would bring in volunteers to do a lot of the mucking and gutting for folks who don't know that, a lot of tearing out the walls that were damaged by the floodwaters and things like that, a lot of kind of basic contractor work that you could have volunteers do, but the bottleneck time and time again was the licensed trades, it was the electricians, it was the plumbers. Mm -hmm. Um, And to a certain extent, the roofers, because most volunteer groups didn't want to put Mm -hmm. folks on roofs for liability reasons. Um, And then, you know, we sort of looked into this closer and found that there's a shortage of these skilled trades even before the storm. So now all of a sudden you don't have enough just to keep up with regular construction. Now all of a sudden you have a massive rebuilding project. So it's interesting in New Jersey to allow out-of-state contractors and the, the trade-offs with doing that, but to try to expand that labor pool.
1: And that's often the practice you see post-disasters. While the subs are local hires that are in the trades that do have the proper licensing like the plumber, et cetera the out of staters and there are several big firms out there across the country do pursue applying to the request for qualifications that often get put out fine disaster because they have the experience in understanding the bureaucracy, but not necessarily under experience in understanding local construction in wherever they're performing that construction. Yeah, yeah.
0: So we're looking to put a shed in my yard in Connecticut and um uh my dad's helped me out with it and we was asking um Uh, what square footage it needs to be before uh, you have to pour a concrete floor. I'm like, I don't know. Don't we just put it up? (laughs) uh, um, And at what point does it need a permit versus it's a small enough square footage? Obviously, this is very different than someone who's been flooded out of their home. It was just sort of a little taste into um, it's amazing as these things kind of pile on and on and on, what may be different in one place versus another. And New Jersey's home rule, right? It is. It is.
1: It is very much at the local level. So when you are a contractor... The prime or the sub, you need to understand the community you're working in. And I don't mean just a nuance of a certain code. I mean, oh, the permitting office is only open till three o'clock on Thursdays Mm. and being aware of that so you don't show up there at 4 p.m. Yeah. Or they only are open on Mondays and Fridays because of the size of the municipality. Yeah. Thus, you show up on Wednesday, you are out of luck. So, so let me back up a little bit make sure I understand the
0: timeline as well, too, because I think this is um, also kind of an important overarching point. Is uh, So it's uh, um, the storm hits.
1: October 29th, 2012.
0: Congress acts. It does. Agencies receive the money and build programs around it. Hopefully, they a- have some structure already in place. So right?
1: agencies receive the money in this instance, focusing on the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Mm-hmm their community block grant, uh, community block CDBG. grant, CD, yeah, community development up. block grants. Yeah. You got it. <laughs> community <laughs> development block grant, but specifically disaster recovery. Mm-hmm. So C D CDBGDR. Yes. That office is responsible for working with the states in receiving the action plan and then approving the action plan, approving any substantial amendments to yeah. the action plan. Um, and really fostering a relationship over the period of the funding being dispersed, which will be over a multi-year period.
0: So this is an interesting, I just want to point out the CDBGDR grants from HUD. Uh, So Housing and Urban Development has these disaster relief block grants. I know um, one of the things um, in the initial budget request from the the Trump administration was to eliminate the the CDBG-DR grants, to eliminate these grants. Um, And it's interesting, and I I won't get into whether or not it's a good idea or a bad idea, but the concern I know that we had was that um, you have... A mechanism. Now you have an agency and institutional memory and processes that are now accustomed to receiving billions of dollars out of nowhere from Congress, and then rapidly translating that into programs, maybe not as rapidly as it needs to be, but sure. still more rapidly than having to start from scratch. So it was interesting to sort of follow that on how, if that does get enacted, how that um, bureaucracy that's been built over the years, and in this case, I mean, bureaucracy is A good thing uh, for managing billions of dollars that came out of nowhere, not came out of nowhere, but um, uh, yeah, came out of nowhere uh, to suddenly then administer and work with states on that. Yeah. So then the state needs to then plug into these programs and administer them. It's about eight months later in June. Correct. Application period opens. How long from there until I'm back in my home?
1: It would vary um, for a variety of reasons. So naturally, once an application is put into a system, any system for that matter, not just specific to New Jersey, that application needs to be reviewed mm-hmm. to ensure that an applicant and their request is a legitimate one. In the case of New Jersey, that was reviewing the application materials, confirming, for example, that this was the primary residence to not, to not mention several other things that we did look at, as well as confirm that there was damage done to that property, which meant we had to send inspectors out. Sure. In the case of what we did, the state put out RFP to hire vendors who had experience in post-disaster inspections to go out and confirm damage was done, what that value of damage was done as well. Environmental inspections would have to be done, given that these are federal funds. Mm-hmm. That can take months, depending on when that applicant applied. Because if you apply on day one, naturally you would be re- served in the order received. But if you applied on day 60, your application may not be reviewed for several weeks the inspection may not be done for several months it's the nature of having an application period that's not rolling and having everyone apply at once you will naturally have a backlog now once the applicant would be approved for instance and sign a grant award then the burden became different it wasn't necessarily the process of the way the application process was it was can the applicant I'm speaking of Pathway B specifically, find a contractor, select that contract, a contractor that was affordable to them. Yeah. Which then brings the next challenge that we did experience in New Jersey. Because Pathway B relies on the applicant, applicants may be in a position where they cannot financially complete their own project because the numbers that contractors are providing them are too far out of the ballpark for what either one they want or two, even if they are not seeking upgrades to their home, what they can afford. So can you give some examples? Certainly. So looking at pathway B again, because that's the best way to focus on this, and some of this does apply to C as well. When those inspectors I just mentioned, the vendors who had experience in post-disaster inspection, did those home inspections, they would say, okay, this home has received damage in order of 200 and $60,000. As I mentioned, we only provided grant awards of $150,000. Mm-hmm. So it's going to cost two sixty dollars to restore this home to what it was, but they only can receive max one fifty dollars from the state. Mind you, in this example, this applicant may have received $50,000 from NFIP. The National Flood Insurance Program. Correct. So they received fifty dollars from NFIP which would count as a duplication of benefit in this instance, which means what? So if we start with the 260 number, we say, okay, we need to subtract out the $50,000 because that's what they received from NFIP. So that gets you to 210. Then you say, okay, but they were going to receive 150 from us. Subtract out the 150. Now you have a delta of $60,000. That's what we described as the unmet need. Okay. So this applicant in the example I just made up has an unmet need of $60,000 that they themselves will be responsible for coming up with. Again, following this pathway, be a very simplistic example. That applicant may seek a loan from a bank. Mm-hmm. They may seek a loan from a relative. That's wonderful if an applicant's able to do that. But if an applicant's not, then that unmet need may stay unmet for years because it's the applicant's responsibility to fill that gap. Now, there are nonprofit builders out there that can assist, and in many cases do get that applicant from start to finish. But we had experienced over the years applicants who were not able to meet those gaps. And I do want to emphasize, you have a wide range of individuals, some of whom are seeking to build the bare minimum, a decent, safe, and sanitary shelter, mm-hmm. and then other people are seeking to restore what was, or maybe even make it better, and that's where the rub comes. Of can you reduce the value of what they're seeking to rebuild? And if you can't, that is a very challenging situation for the applicant as well as for the state. So, uh, so kind of going
0: through the timeline it takes about eight months for the, the the shop to get open, start taking applicants. Where you are in that application process? Uh, An order of first received, if you're able to get it in quicker, it gets looked at quicker. And then depending on which pathway you're going down, if you're managing the construction yourself... Uh, versus if the state's doing it, you know. Another thing um, you've been mentioning a bit throughout here is um, having to issue RFQs, requests for qualification, RFPs, yes. requests for proposal. So, um, kind of throughout this, you're also having to build up the the stable of contractors and staffing and and assessors and things to be able to do uh, to to do all of this as well. And so, I think that this is something you know as we're looking at post disaster housing policy kind of nationally, it is um, this influx of resources but then the need to build the infrastructure to receive and manage that uh, very quickly, and then to work within the broader economies of home construction. There are only so many contractors available, um, only so many qualified contractors available.
1: And that aspect, only so many contractors available, is a phenomenon that's hard to get around anywhere across the country. And having been in this industry for several years now, I'm not sure what the way around there is to increase the number of contractors in a short period of time, but you brought up another point just now talking about RFQs, RFPs, vendors, government services vendors, Mm -hmm. individuals who may be subject matter experts to assist in developing policy, Uh, companies that may be assisting as operations managers to work with caseworkers who need to be hired up in short order to manage the application process one-on-one with applicants. Uh, or be it in project managers who are assisting the monitoring of construction specific to C but also be to a degree cuz we want to have as much insight as possible what the progress is for example government services contractors rely on hiring local talent local talent who may not necessarily have experience in either bureaucracy of government or caseworker management in the sense of being social workers deal with individuals who may have gone through a dramatic experience, such as a disaster, which again, everyone reacts differently to when disasters occur, but some may have more, may, may have experienced more dramatic experience than others. I bring up these challenges that the vendors go through because naturally, indirectly, the state's going through them too, or whatever jurisdiction has received the money and has then dispersed it to vendors. It is problematic. Because talent is hired locally who doesn't have the experience that you would otherwise want them to have after a disaster. And one of the things I think as a country we need to think about moving forward, and I think one of the challenges we face, because everything is an emergency supplemental, we actually don't have to debate on it. But one of the, cha- one of the things we need to think about is how does the state's Work with the vendors to ensure that the initial management of programs is as smooth as possible because the model as it is today is not as efficient or operationally sound as it should be. And that creates delays because you may have local hires who don't understand this needs to be provided or that form needs to be provided.
0: And, and I think we're really sort of getting into, I think, the meat of of kind of the, the impact of, of this being structured the way that it is. Before we jump into that, I just had one more question. And that is, you know, we hear a lot about fraud afterwards, people claiming things that weren't damaged, you mentioned a little bit to that, and also contractors who either are intentionally deceiving, or maybe have deceived themselves that they're able to, to do the work that they and then get in over their heads. I'm curious what your experiences with that.
1: So at a, at a macro level, applicant fraud is relatively minimal. Um, often, applicant fraud has an individual claiming that this primary, excuse me, second home is actually their primary residence. Okay. That is what we experienced uh, in the realm of applicant fraud in New Jersey. So they
0: say their beach home was their primary Correct. residence kind Correct. of thing. Correct. Yeah. Correct.
1: Yeah. Um, And in this day and age, by the way, it sometimes is not that hard to find when you go on Facebook and see them describing their beach home as the home that they're receiving funding for. That makes it a lot easier than it would have been 20 years ago of trying to figure that out. They assist us in figuring that out.
0: Pro tip out there for anyone looking to defraud the government.
1: (laughs) On the contractor side, and again, specific to Pathway B, uh, contractor fraud does happen no matter when or where disaster strikes. The nuance here is it involves federal funds. In the case of New Jersey, and I don't want to do too deep a dive because we will get very much in the weeds on this, but in the case of New Jersey, when we would verify that a adjudicating authority, local prosecutor's office, or state prosecutor's, attorney general's office specifically, found that fraud may have occurred and they will pursue it and charge that contractor with fraud, then... The Sandy Recovery Division, so made that applicant whole. So, for example, the two hundred and sixty example I just gave a moment ago, they were receiving one hundred and fifty thousand from us. Let's say they received a disbursement of seventy thousand dollars. Seventy thousand dollars at the point in construction where they are, that contractor may have run away with seventy thousand bucks. We would say, okay, you do have a charging document against that contractor, Mr. and Mrs. Applicant. We will now make you whole again by giving you an additional $70,000. That's what we chose to do as a state with HUD's approval, of course, because we are naturally giving more federal funds out to an applicant, but an applicant who was defrauded. Mm -hmm. The next question becomes, how do you ensure that fraud doesn't occur when you have applicants who are self-selecting their contractors? You're never going to be able to prevent fraud entirely how can you reduce it? And the way you do reduce it is by ensuring that your applicant is as knowledgeable as possible about how construction works, ensuring that they are not giving money to contractors without work being performed, with the exception, of course, of a down payment to get the project started. Unfortunately, what we would find, particularly among the elderly, Applicants would give 25000 dollars to say sit down payment to get the project started. Then the contractor wants an additional twenty-five, dollars then an additional 30, then an additional 35. And you go to these homes and you say, What did he or she do? And that contractor did nothing. Yeah. Your applicants need to be as well informed as possible, which gives me the opportunity right now to bring up one of the suggestions. I have had and have made, I should say, with my counterparts across the country. When you are starting a program, it is so important to educate your potential applicant pool as much as possible. Both educate them in what your program is and isn't, and also educate them to construction in general. I'm not saying what a two-by-four is per se, but what I am saying is understand the telltale signs when fraud may be occurring. Know what to look for. Because even if someone doesn't apply for your program, they're going to be more knowledgeable and fraud is less likely to occur in general across the population. Just, yeah,
0: even in the absence of disaster, yeah. So, I, you know, one thing I, I appreciate both in this conversation and other ones we've had is uh, without pride or prejudice, sort of you, you're laying out this is how the, the political process plays out. This yes. is how the bureaucratic process plays out. Um, it takes a long time. And these are the steps that it takes. Um, and you started to go into it before. Uh, before I shifted gears, (laughs) but now let's get back into it. Um, Recognizing how long this takes, I guess I have two questions. One is, within the existing process, what would you do differently or recommend to a community that is in the path of the storm or could be hit in the future? And then my second question is what should change about the way that it's set up to make it more efficient or what could be changed to make it more efficient.
1: In regards to your first question, it comes back to what I just said a moment ago, and this is directed to the states or a local jurisdiction, maybe the grantee from the federal government. Ensure that your applicants from the get-go understand what your program is and isn't. Unfortunately, we're experiencing this in New Jersey, no different than New York, no different than Texas, Florida. Every state experienced what I'm about to say. The the reality of what a program is versus the perception of what a program is. Mm -hmm. And the challenge for civil servants, political appointees, who are working in disaster recovery, is bridging that gap between what is perceived and what is the reality. The only way you do that is ensuring that you keep informing your applicant about what the pod project, or I should say program, is. And that starts at the beginning. Recognizing, also telling the applicants that programs do evolve over time, but making abundantly clear what you are right now. Because in some instances and in some programs, just because there's federal money an applicant can tap into may not mean that they should tap into those federal funds. Hmm. Because if an applicant in a program where you do have unmet needs, and if an applicant has an unmet need that's several hundred thousands of dollars, that federal assistance program, via the states or a local jurisdiction, may not be right for them. Why should they be paying their mortgage every month for several years, only to be in the same position several years later when they can't reach that gap in their unmet need? And by having applicants who understand what the program is from the beginning, applicants can make more educated decisions sooner, more educated decisions financially, more educated decisions, dare I say, even emotionally, because the stress of being in any program or getting any loan is naturally tied to that disaster, an awful period in many people's lives. Mm -hmm. The sooner you get someone home, the more they're able to put it behind them. Mm -hmm. When things get dragged out, you're not able to do that. And again, it comes back down to understand what the program is. And I put that burden on the states. To communicate that to applicants, ensure that every applicant who's in your program has attended an outreach, get people to sign in, possibly don't even allow people to apply for your program until they've attended an outreach, until they've read through the policies and procedures and say, yes, I have read this uh, online, for instance, no different than any, you know, terms and agreement of what have you You would do for any kind of online app.
0: You, you know, just to sidetrack for a brief moment, you mentioned kind of the, the long-term effects of people with uh, with housing as well. Um, the, um some research that, uh, that, that was done through the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University, as well as NYU and Rutgers and some other partners looked at um, health and mental health impacts to families in different housing situations. Now, this was not um, directly linked to housing policy, so I want to be clear on that. But it did find that, so you had people who had no damage or minimal damage to their housing, and then you had people um, with uh, significant, with their homes totally destroyed- True. And of course, you saw an increase in mental health, and I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, um, but of course, if your home was totally destroyed, you were more likely to have health and mental health issues. But actually, the highest risk were those whose homes were moderately damaged um and it it was it's this phenomena that you know the study wasn't designed to really explain that but that's something that we learned from it was that by having your house moderately damaged based on some of the interviews and and anecdotally we think that it may be that people were living in their homes with this partial damage you know if your home's totally destroyed you sort of have to reset into a new normal that that that, um is, is somewhat again it was still higher risk but but Being in the home with the partial damage for these prolonged periods of time um, is, I I believe, our hypothesis for why.
1: Jeff, that doesn't shock me because even if the applicant or the individual is not living in the home, they still have the stressful decisions about what do you do. Right. And in some cases, if you have moderate to severe damage, you have to make the decision about whether it makes sense to start anew, literally tear down the existing structure that you may be able to live in if you had to, or rather rehabilitate that structure. And that is a different can of worms than looking at what was your property, or rather is your property, but where your home was and is no longer there. Yeah. You know what you have to do at that point. Yeah. When it comes down to home repair, that being restoring the housing, rehabilitating what was, I can see that being a more stressful enterprise for some people.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I um, again, all, all sort of theories at this point, but with some a really kind of interesting phenomena that 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 was such a higher risk area. I'll actually link to that study in the, the description of this as well, too, for folks wanting to take a closer look at that. So that gets us to the second question I asked a while ago.
1: It, right? it does, which is, what would make my job easier, if I remember your question correctly? Something along those lines, yeah. yeah. So the way it works now is states need to develop the action plans. I mentioned that at the beginning. States rely on subject matter experts in the form of government services vendors to assist because the states don't have standing offices often. There are exceptions to the rule. General Land Office in Texas, the GLO, is one of those exceptions. But in the case of New York, in the case of New Jersey, in the case of California, you don't have standing disaster offices. So Let- the, these are ones, um,
0: sorry to interrupt, these are ones, so so the example you give in Texas, I think the, um, North Carolina stood up their Office of Resiliency and Recovery, um, sort of trying to stand pre-disaster offices that are ready to manage post-disaster, right? Jeff, you're reading my mind. <laughs> All right. So what, that's okay.
1: <laughs> the, the next step for states like New Jersey, like New York, like California, is to establish offices offices of resiliency, it is to ensure that you do have an office in place that can manage disasters after they occur, some kind of standing office that becomes the filing cabinet, if you will, plans in place following disaster a a great example actually of this is the state of louisiana that was still dealing with katrina Mm
0: -hmm. when
1: the baton rouge floods occurred in 2016 because they had the standing human infrastructure in place the know-how they were able to build out what would become their action plan for the baton rouge floods in real time most states don't have that luxury Now, most states, again, I'll come back to the Northeast because that's what I'm most familiar with, it may not make sense to have a standing office of 10 people even. So what do you do? In my opinion, you create a reserve force. You have people at the Department of Transportation, people at codes, people here, people there that know they will be pulled in the event of a disaster, in the event of federal funds being dispersed to the state. They'll be seconded to that office of resiliency in the event of a disaster.
0: Do you, do you remember offhand roughly how big the recovery office was, the Sandy Housing Recovery Office was, just to give folks a sense of scale?
1: At our height, which includes our vendor, and the reason why I say that is because New Jersey outsourced the management of caseworkers at our field offices. We were several hundred.
0: Several hundred. So going Se- from zero to several hundred within a few months. Correct. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Correct. Any organization would find that a challenge.
0: Right, right. So what you're saying is that by sort of kind of getting these in place, like, you know, I keep coming back to that timeline, the time it takes to pass legislation, receive it, staff it, build up to it. Anything to reduce that time frame reduces the point where people start getting, uh, shortens the time before people start getting back in their homes.
1: Exactly. And what I'm speaking to specifically right now of having that expertise or having that expertise in waiting, if you will, as a reserve force, that is shortening the time from disaster, excuse me, that is shortening the time from when Congress passes an emergency supplemental to when the action plan is approved. If you can reduce that period of time, all the better. Um, and that again varies in length state to state. So I can't make a blanket judgment about how that process works.
0: So the housing and urban development, the, the community development block grants, once you have that legislation, the programs are predictable enough to start staffing up while they start receiving them at the federal level
1: more or less? Often that is what occurs, yes. Okay. Yes. Um, The other thing to finish out my thoughts on what your question was, what would make one's life easier um, as a civil servant or political appointee in disaster recovery is not just have that Office of Resiliency in place, but also have the federal government be able to provide states templates templates on what a program should look like, and have states have other states at their fingertips as a resource to speak to. South Carolina did a great job with this. Following their multiple hurricanes that were in a row several years ago, they reached out to other states to really absorb others' lessons learned, and that exponentially helped them in their process. I wish New Jersey we had that luxury back in 2012. We didn't. HUD is encouraging that more by having annual conferences among grantees, but that's in the last couple of years. Right. And we need to be doing more of that. We need that dialogue between the states to be more robust, to ensure that people are learning, or rather I should say states are learning others' lessons without having to experience it themselves. That all said, if HUD had a template, regional templates, that could be pulled off the shelf and adjusted for individual states based on their certain uh, jurisdictional uniqueness um, that would make the process all the more easy, streamline it, and not uh, have the states overly rely on consultants and vendors in that initial build-out process.
0: So, um, you know, you corrected yourself a minute ago in that uh, it's not from the disaster to when they get in their home, but from when Congress passes the emergency supplemental to when they get in their home. I'm curious if you want to weigh in on sort of shortening that first piece there, if you have thoughts on it is. Our reliance uh, on emergency supplementals.
1: So emergency supplementals is not the way to govern. Um, that's not what the founders intended when they uh, built out the three branches of government, nor is it how our government had operated for much of its history until the last 20-odd years. Um, you used to have budgets that got passed every year. Budgets were broken up into parts in which, okay, they're going to be voting on the agriculture budget today, or they're going to be voting on the Department of Commerce budget today. If And I say that because if we took disaster recovery and said, you know what, we are going to include it in the budget, then that means Congress needs to know exactly what's being funded, how they're going to be managing those funds. Who is going to be managing those funds? Who will be responsible at HUD for deciding where that money goes after a disaster? Um, I would love to see Congress hold hearings on figuring out what is the right way to do disaster recovery in the United States in 2019. Because the way these programs are designed today, they're designed to restore the tax bases locally, to ensure that the municipalities have have their population back as soon as possible, and thus the states don't need to provide financial assistance to municipalities who may have been depopulated. That's what we're doing today. But is that the right way?
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Or rather, should this be a homelessness prevention program in that our job is not about restoring the tax base. Our job is about ensuring that that individual who was in a home that was damaged or destroyed gets back to a decent, safe, and sanitary shelter as soon as possible. And that may mean we are not rebuilding that home or that applicant is not rebuilding that home where they lived, but rather they are now moving two counties over inland and have found a home to to be their new home. Um, I bring up the nuance between restoring a tax base and homelessness prevention because that's really the debate that needs to occur. And once that debate occurs then we can better know how we want the funding to be included, hopefully, in a budget instead of emergency supplementals. Remember, disaster recovery, and for that matter, disaster assistance and disaster recovery, has been the largest expansion of the federal government since the turn of the century. We don't think of it like that because it's not in the budget, because it's an emergency supplemental every time a disaster occurs. When you start adding up the dollars, it's billions upon billions. Just in September 2017, the federal government has allocated, through emergency supplementals, 100, nearly $120 billion. That's just since 2017.
0: Yeah, it's very, very striking. There's a couple of op-eds. Uh, Brock Long wrote one about how females spend more in the next two years than in the last, I think, 37. I'll link to that. Um, just as an aside, we were talking about, I'll link to, there's actually an analyst, um um, I'll apologize to my, my liberal listeners, but the, the, at the Heritage Foundation, which actually um, he does some uh, a really phenomenal work sort of looking at, um, again, just in terms of kind of the, the, the fiscal federalism of all of this and, and the um, over-reliance on emergency supplementals to kind of subvert the budgetary process and some of the discussions that we're not having.
1: And, and there's not enough of a conversation going on in D.C. Uh, a moment ago, I was just discussing Congress, but you bring up Heritage There's not enough people in the think tank community, if you will, who are studying, researching, uh, thinking, writing on disaster recovery. We can do a better job than we're doing. We may choose in the end to continue what we're doing, but at least then we are in an educated position to where we've said we've uh, considered everything that we want to consider and we are moving forward. But right now, it's always a crisis after the initial crisis, that being the disaster. And it doesn't need to be this way.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk through all of this, to kind of share your experience through all of this and really educating folks on, on the complexities of this. And, and again, that's really what this podcast is all about, is understanding what are the uh, political forces, uh, maybe political is the, wrong, uh, the the politic behind it all. Um, the bureaucracies behind it all that sort of steer us to doing things the way that we do them that we may not realize it. Um, How can folks kind of keep track of what you're up to? Um, Sure. Any social media or anything to follow you on?
1: I am on Twitter. Uh, I can be followed at David Mazuka M-A-Z-Z-U-C-A. And for those who are in government around the country who I've had conversations with, they know I am accessible to them. Um, So if anyone's listening to this who I've not spoken to or met over the years, who may be doing disaster recovery work somewhere else in the United States, feel free to direct message me over Twitter and happy to chat. Awesome. Well, thanks again
0: for joining us. Really appreciate um, all that you've done and your willingness to kind of talk about it and always uh, striving to do better.
1: Happy to. Jeff, thank you for having me.
0: Right. And thanks again to David Mazuka for really helping to break down the complexity of these programs, helping us to better understand why they work the way they do, uh, but also for helping to point the direction, taking the lessons learned both in New Jersey and across the country on how we can fold that into policy and practice to uh, always strive to do a better job and, and really shorten that duration to help get people back in their homes and communities back on their feet uh, much faster in the face of disaster. If you like what we're doing here on the podcast, leave us a five-star rating and some comments on iTunes or wherever you download this podcast. Uh, If you want to keep the conversation going, we're on Twitter. We're at DisasterPolitik. You can also email us at disasterpoliticspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Always a pleasure to talk with all of you. And whatever you're doing, stay safe out there.